Hey, thanks everyone for watching the special edition of Zoom in the Books and for listening to our Big Time Talker podcast. We're global now, iHeartMedia, uh, Google, Apple iTunes, wherever you get your podcast, Blog Talk Radio. Thank you so much for listening and thank you to our sponsor, SpeakerMatch.com, the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. If you're a platform speaker uh, or a meeting planner, in-person meetings are coming back in 2022. Find one another at speakermatch.com. I'm sure there are lots of veterans in the audience and veteran authors uh, have joined an award-winning photojournalist to put together the book, The 20-Year War. And we welcome to the show our veterans, Dan Blakely and Tom Aminta, and also photojournalist Bo Simmons. Gentlemen, thanks for taking time to talk to us about this incredible book. Thanks for having Thank you for having us. Bo, I want to start with you and the idea behind the book. This is a, a big coffee table book. The photography is amazing. And I'm not just saying that because I'm looking at you face to face. These are really arresting images. Where, where did the idea come from to talk to all these veterans from the, the global war on terror? Uh, I mean, so it started in 2020. Um, I decided to move my life from California to North Carolina to be closer to Dan, who is my childhood friend since we were about four and five years old. Um, obviously, Dan served in the Army as an Army Ranger, and that's how he met Tom. But when I moved closer to Dan, I wanted to create a photo book on some of my travels across America of all the different like Western and cowboy culture that um, I kind of associate myself with outside of our company. And um, I think it was around the time that Dan was starting to want to give back to veterans himself. And I recently did a, a, a project beforehand where I was photographing a different art series uh, for a gallery. And then I was donating proceeds to a veteran organization called Heroes and Horses. And so when Dan heard about that and saw it featured on Fox News, um, Dan kind of presented the idea to me and was basically telling me, hey, you know, this photo book that you want to do sounds like a great idea. Why don't you do what you love doing and let's do a photo book on veterans who have served overseas in the past 20 years since next year. This is, like I said, back in 2020, 2021 would mark the 20 year anniversary of 9-11 and GWAT. So that's kind of how the whole idea got started was through uh, Dan and I. And these, these pictures show the, the diversity of the veteran community uh, from you know, all forms, geographically and ethnicity. And the book comes out, and then, Dan, amazingly, this, this entire thing in Afghanistan comes to a crashing halt uh, What within a week or two of the book's release. Take me back in time to August when all that was happening all at once. What do you remember about your book release, and then suddenly you and Tom and Bo being thrust into the national spotlight like that? You know, I keep, I keep telling people it was unfortunate, perfect timing um, yeah. because we, we knew that the 20 year anniversary was coming up. We knew that there was a deadline to pull people out of Afghanistan. Um, I think Tom and I, and a lot of people from the veteran community and even active duty service members uh, would have never imagined that the pullout happened the way that it did. Um, when, you know, the decision was made to, to, uh, you know, remove all troops from Afghanistan. Uh, I definitely thought it was going to be more of a phased approach and, and more strategic uh, in nature, but obviously that didn't happen. And so when those images started flashing, you know, across the scene or, or uh, across the screen of, you know, Afghans trying to flee 
Afghanistan, um, a lot of our partners uh, that even I served alongside with the Afghan army and the Afghan police, um, it was kind of hard. It was hard to see it all. But, uh, you know, it was one of those things that I would have never imagined that would have thrust us kind of into the spotlight because, you know, we were the only authors out there with a book titled The 20-Year War. And across every single headline at that time was the 20-year war coming to an end, the 20-year war, you know, seeing uh, seeing it realized, you know, all these different titles. And so um, being in the spotlight and trying to give a voice to veterans and just how we were feeling about the entire process um, was really important. And honestly, I, I think Tom feels the same probably. You know, we're definitely honored that we were able to share some of that insight and how we felt. Um, but it was definitely a, a difficult time. Um, exciting for the book, but difficult for us as veterans to process. Yeah. So, Tom, I remember distinctly one of the first things that we read about you guys or saw about you in, in the national media was this Washington Post article that <laughs> that talked to you. And and I can't do what you said in that article justice, but there was an incredible quote in there. And I'd love it you share it with our Zoom into Books audience. Well, I mean, it, that that was just a wild story just to begin with. I was I was literally on a on a day job trip and you know a, a friend of a friend was like hey you know I saw you, you posted something on Twitter and um, he's like you know how do you feel and it was right when it was starting I'm like I'm so angry like I, I don't know what my friends uh, sacrifice for I don't know what they I do, what they die for I don't know what makes sense right now in this moment because we've gone from saying we're going to support our allies to literally leaving in the middle of the night which is when you know the president ordered General Miller to leave Bagram. And it, it touched off this sort of, you know, national interest. And it was funny because the, the next morning I was supposed to meet with a friend and I couldn't, I could not go more than five minutes for us having breakfast before like someone else was calling my cell phone. Like, I don't even know how some of these people got my phone number. Like, it was really like, wow, well, they say reporters know how to dig, you know, it was, and so it started that, but at the same time, the, the most beautiful thing that ultimately came out of it is like, you know, I'm having this moment of just wrestling with what I did means and what does the 20 year war mean and trying to grapple with the fact that we just wrote this book and our goal was to show the veteran experience, show what it meant to serve honorably and show how veterans continue to serve today, you know, through Bo's amazing portraits and then through these stories. And a friend of mine who's a, a professor of political science in Paris, actually, she's an expat in, in France. She was like, you know, I read your article and I understand that this has to be difficult. She's not a veteran and I can't imagine. She goes, but when you think about this, I hope that you'll hold your head up high. And I hope that you'll encourage every other veteran to do that because for the past 20 years, we have never seen another 9-11 attack. There has been relative peace. My father has gotten to see his grandchildren grow up. You know, I've been able to raise my children. You know, my husband and I have had this amazing life. And that is because of what you and other veterans did to make sure that no one like uh, no one like bin Laden had another 9-11. And that really stuck with me. It was this sort of whirlwind of, you know, a day and a half where I went from like, what is going on to, no, that's why we did it. And I, I at least for me personally, like the, the synergy for all of that, thinking about the book, you know, because I made a comment to Dan at one point, I'm like, did our title of a book just become the sickest joke ever? Like, is, is that what's going on here? Right. Right. And then- and once my friend said that, I'm like, no, 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 this is, this is actually perfectly titled. This is exactly what everybody needs to see, to hear and to see is because this is what 
the the veteran experience is. And this is this is what we fought for was to make sure that that never happened again. And I'm really grateful that we had an opportunity to to work together on this book. And I'm really uh, you know thankful for my friend's perspective in that moment. If you're just coming across the conversation online, we're talking to the authors of the 20 Year War, uh, available at bookstores everywhere, at all the online outlets. And the website, guys, is 20yearwar.com. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yep, correct. Winnierwar.com, and there are these deluxe editions that are just breathtaking. Uh, when we received ours at the office, I was just blown away. Um, Bo, I, I want to get sort of into the specifics of this journey across America that you took, um, because that that's sort of breathtaking in itself. And that happened, of course, before uh, things drew down in Afghanistan. So you're talking to these veterans all over the country. How many states did you visit? How many men and women uh, how did you do the routing? How did all that come together? Was it a, a big crew? Were you guys on one of those big media buses? Or is it you in a pickup truck with a hound dog beside you? Tell me what that trip was like. Uh, it was me in a sedan car all by myself. So basically, when we were figuring out when we want to release this book by September 11th of 2021, uh, we had about four months to put the book together in its entirety, which is unheard of for most coffee table photo books to do. So come January, we had the conversation going in December, come January, 2021, I knew that we needed to try and capitalize as many, you know, veterans that we can meet up with uh, as fast as possible, but to allow plenty of time to hear their story and take their photos. So I decided to go on a road trip across the United States. Um, I drove across about three times. So I drove across 42 States, a little over 16,000 miles in about a month and a half. Um, there was a few other kind of short trips where we were flying to different states just to wrap up the final veterans. But I mean, there's men, women, all from different branches of the US military that I met with. And some of these people were meeting inside their home with their family, some outside their business, or some just, you know, in the outdoors or doing a hobby or something that they enjoy. And the whole process was me taking their photo on, you know, medium format film, and then I was recording their stories on my phone and then sending those to Tom through like a Dropbox so that he could transcribe them and write them in first person to truly capture the authenticity of each veteran's voice. Were there any, um, any commonalities, any common threads through these people who I'm assuming you'd never met any of them before, right? This is a first no, time sure. meeting. Anything yeah. that as you look at it in the rear view, because if you're doing, what do you say, 42 states in three months? That's, yep. you know, that's got to get all jumbled up in your head, but now you've got some perspective, some hindsight, any commonalities between those folks? You know, when I first started the trip, I was kind of fearful that I'd run into the same story twice, you know, out of 71 veterans who have served in a span of 20 years, I was like, we're going to run into it at least once. Um, we need to try and figure out how we can make it unique for each person. But to be truthfully honest, we didn't. Um, every person in this book in the 20 year war has a unique voice. The only commonality I would say is that a lot of them I noticed had a hard time with transitioning back to the civilian life. And I think that that was kind of the huge takeaway point is that no matter how much these people have gone on to be successful or have gone on to do other things with their life, they all struggled at one point or another when they were hanging up the uniform and trying to enter back into the civilian workforce. So Dan, you and Tom are both uh, retired army rangers. I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit for those of us who 
support our military. And I think every red-blooded American does. We appreciate very much what you guys do and the sacrifice you took away from your families and your homes and putting yourself in harm's way. We can't really get inside your skin. So what makes that transition difficult? And, and is that something that you dealt with? Um, I think the the best and easiest parallel I can I can kind of draw to it is people who are you know at uh, at the most elite levels of sports. So you know that's an NFL, NBA, uh, Olympic athlete, whatever it is, even the high school quarterback, where you know that's all you knew, that's all you eat, sleep, drink is just your sport, and you're so in tune with your craft. Um, and team sports, especially, I feel like you, you get this feeling because you develop a certain level of brotherhood or sisterhood in that. And when you, when you transition out of the military, it's much like separating from, you know, a sports team where you now don't have those people to lean on. You don't have the, the organization and the structure behind you to really give you something to drive towards. And so trying to explain that or come back to a civilian life um, where People just don't understand that perspective. They don't understand what you've gone through. And not to mention over the last 20 years, majority of the people who have served have seen some sort of combat or at least the effects of combat, whether it's their friends coming back or them actually serving overseas. Um, it's a really hard thing to deal with. And a, a lot of veterans, including myself, struggle with it. And I was one of those veterans who came back, uh, you know, deployed six times, uh, to Iraq and Afghanistan, saw a lot of stuff. And when I decided to get out and go to school, I said, all right, well, that's, that's my past. Close that book, put it on the shelf. Let's not, you know, open it anymore. And uh, probably easier I, said than done though, right? <laughs> definitely easier said than done. And uh, it's one of those things that I, you know, I don't regret really anything I've ever done in my life. Um, I've learned from everything. Everything's been an opportunity to learn and grow from it. Um, but one thing that I do wish I could tell my younger self is to not do that, um, to say, you know, definitely lean on your brothers and sisters that you served with to, to continue to keep those networks open, to look at your service as something that's really helped you grow and become the person you are today. And it took me eight years after separating 2020, you know, the year everybody was at home and their thoughts because of COVID and being shut down. And it was that year of me looking back and being like, wow, I, I just realized how much I had actually done. And I wanted to share that with people. And I realized as I was talking to more and more veterans, they felt the exact same way. And so, um, I, as Bo said, you know, you see that and you, and you hear it um, in the voices of these veterans as they tell their story throughout the book. The authors of the beautiful coffee table book, The 20 Year War, joining us today, Tom and Bo and, and Dan. And Tom, you know, in my parents' generation, it seemed like every young man served in the country, literally my father and all his brothers. And on my mom's side, all the men in the family served. And those folks populated every small business in our hometown. They populated state government. They were our senators and our congressmen. It's not that way anymore. And you don't have as many people that have served. You may have a biased view on this, but I wonder, I wonder Tom, what you think uh, the complexion of the country would be like if more of our men and women in leadership positions had served in the military? Oh, wow. Um, yeah, that's a super easy question. <laughs> no. Um, so, I, I mean, the first thing that I would say is that, 
you know, I think that we need to acknowledge that there's just, you know, they haven't utilized the draft since Vietnam. So a lot of, a lot of people uh, that did serve, you know, were voluntold as we, as to borrow a phrase from the military. Um, now, I, I'm personally on the record of saying that if I could wave a magic wand and change one single thing about America, it's that you'd have to serve for three years, whether it's the military, the Peace Corps, or AmeriCorps, but you would be required to do that. I just think that um, America is 329 people, or 329 million of the most diverse people on the planet, and America means different things to different people, which is actually something you see in the book. So I think that that's the first thing that that a leader, whether they're in, you know, your local community, like you described, or they are a national or regional leader, one of the things that you take away from military service is that perspective. My, uh, the, the person in the bunk next to me when I was in basic training was literally from Compton, California. I grew up in the very nice uh, upper middle class suburbs of Chicago to the point where it was 2014 or 2015, where Good Morning America named the neighborhood I grew up in the most Americana neighborhood in the United States. There's literally a candy store actually in the neighborhood. Okay, like that's that's how I grew up. Like Ward Cleaver was just down the street. So, so a little different than Compton. Just a yeah, little different. So, and so so what does my, you know, uh, white upper middle class butt do? Ask them what the donut shop is, is like in the Dr. Dre music video because that's all I know of Compton, to which he quickly <laughs> replies, that's not actually in Compton. And to this day, I really appreciate it and beat me up for it because Lord knows that's probably what I would have done if I had been in his position. Right. Yeah, yeah. I just didn't, I didn't understand that, that, that concept of America, like, and, but he taught me and he, you know, and I mean, this guy could literally tell you the, the handgun going off by the sound of me with no exaggeration. He was right. Which is also wow. not something I was used to in the way that I grew up. So I think that, I think that what, we're, we're missing out on this more than one way to serve. It doesn't just have to be the military. That's how Dan and I did it. And I'm always, that's why I say like, if you want to do the Peace Corps, great. You want to do AmeriCorps, great. But I think everyone should serve. Um, and I think that's what we're missing. And I think as we get to this point where only less than 1% of the American population has served over the past 20 years in the war on terror, I think that it's, and especially with these echo chambers of social media and, and these just these different mechanisms and machinations where we seem to get more and more isolated. COVID hasn't helped with that. I think that what the perspective of being a veteran is, is that you get to, re- you're constantly reminded, reminding yourself that America means different things to different people. You know, even if I don't necessarily agree with someone, I can at least try and put myself in their shoes. Cause I had that benefit because I was around so much, you know, the, you know, the kid from Compton, the dude, I, you know, I'm in Omaha, Nebraska now, but I, I went to basic with a, a guy that was from rural Nebraska that would go to the, to the feed store once a year for two new pairs of jeans and a couple of t-shirts, right? Like that was it, you know, um, you know, all over like a really wealthy kid, like super, like, you know, F you money rich. Like you you got to see all of that in the military and you got to learn how much more similar we are than different. And I think that's also something that the book captures really well. Oh, it's huge. You know, I grew up in Appalachia and and here's my dad in the great depression going out and and meeting people from all over the country Mm -hmm. over the world that he would never have had the opportunity to rub shoulders with uh and bo simmons is the photographer the photojournalist who is behind these amazing images in the book and i'm sure you saw a lot of that and and i won't put you on the spot but i'm gonna because that's my job you met over 70 of these veterans and i'm sure there were some stories that came out of those meetings that that stuck with you maybe more than others. And, and they're all special. And, uh, and I will tell you, uh, Bo, this book is like a visual updated greatest generation book for me. 
which is one of the best books I've read in the last 30 years. This book is that good, primarily because of the pictures you took and the stories that you heard. But, but tell me one or two of those stories that stick with you to this day. Oh man. Um, I mean, it's always tough to to isolate each one because they're so unique, but I mean, there's a gentleman named Aaron Lowrich that really stands out to me because of he's kind of got this different sided story that you're not really expected to see in the book to where he actually was, you know, um, lack of a better term kicked out of the military because of his drug abuse. Um, because he was, a combat medic and got addicted to opioids that are just there, like literally in a Pelican case at his disposal day in and day out. And, you know, his wife was suffering from brain hemorrhages. And so he had to go home and take care of her. And you just almost see this man who served his country and served in one of the, you know, top, you know, tier one positions in the army. And then you know, gets kicked out and kind of turns his back against it and never wants to move back to the town that he was in because he's afraid to see some of his team guys in a grocery store, but then goes on to overcome that, you know, and move him and his wife to a peaceful town in Georgia, you know, find love and compassion again and just overcome some of those obstacles. So again, it's hard to really isolate each person, but that's, you know, one gentleman that really stood out to me when I was meeting him because hearing his story was pretty rough to hear, to see, you know, how he was kind of a little bit nervous to share it, um, to open up for the first time, but I've seen him grow as an individual since we met. And I've seen him want to offer back to the, to the veteran community even more. Um, and I don't want to take credit for that. I don't think, you know, either three all, or all three of us, I don't think want to take credit for that, but just seeing that we were able to capture his photo and his story and now seeing where he's gone with his life, it's, it's pretty impactful and it's incredible to call him my friend after that too. Dan, how did you guys select the veterans that that you talked to? Or the veterans, again, of my parents' generation were pretty stoic about their service. And my dad did not make a big deal out of that whole thing and, and kind of really downplayed the whole deal. So how did you select the 70-some folks that the, the Bo traipsed all over the country running up miles on his car uh, to meet? Uh, you know, it was, it was a very interesting process because um, when we we're first talking about it. I think, you know, Bo had, had put a, a dream number up in the, up in the sky of 80, getting 80 veterans or something like that. And I was like, there's no way we're going to be able to get 80 veterans in the time frame that we have. Um, so we already backed it down very early on, uh, to maybe like 50 to 60. But, um, what was very interesting is once we got the ball rolling and we started talking to a few veterans, you know, obviously I, I went to my immediate network. Um, that's how I contacted Tom and he got involved. Um, but I just went to my immediate network and started telling them about the idea of this book. And I, I think to your point, Burke, you know, not many people want to share their, their combat story. They don't necessarily want to share their story of service, but they want to share why they served. They want to share what mm-hmm. they learned from their service and they want to share maybe some things that they've learned along the way as they've transitioned out of service so that they can help, you know, their fellow brothers and sisters who, who are looking at transition. And that was really the, the crux of the book is saying, look, we want to share, just tell a little bit about your, your combat story, what you've gone through, but it, that's not what the book's about. The book is about the transition and that's what we're going to focus on. 
And what was truly remarkable to me is there wasn't a single veteran that we asked that said no. There was, you know, one or two veterans out there that, you know, we just couldn't line up schedules or something came up to where it just didn't work out. The timing wasn't good. Um, But every single veteran we asked got excited about it and said, this is exactly, you know, the book I've been looking for. So thank you for, for sharing these stories. And every veteran who's read it um, and has given us feedback have, have said the exact same thing. It's like, thank you for doing a book like this. And hearing that could probably blow any other accolade uh, out of the water, no matter the amount of money that we could or may or maybe never will make from this, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Like just the, the few veterans who have been able to tell us how impactful it has been for their lives to, to Bo's point too, like Aaron, him telling his story and getting it out there. I had another veteran who was on our podcast who shared his story, served for over 20 years in the Marine Corps and said, you know, if I would have never, I never thought sharing my story was going to be important. And that to me was, was kind of a shock because you think somebody who serves for over 20 years, that's a large majority of their life, but they want to, to get it out there. And once they do, they feel this certain amount of relief of like, yes, I finally got my story out there. Somebody's heard me. And, uh, and so I'm just proud of, of all three of us for being able to do that. This book that we're talking about the 20 year war is available from ballast books and you can find it on their website, uh, bookstores everywhere, ask for it by name, or go to 20yearwar.com, spell out the word 2020yearwar.com and, and get the, the special limited edition version. Uh, Bo shared with us earlier in the conversation that he grew up with you, Dan, and you, so you guys are buddies from when you're you know, knee-high to a tadpole. Tom, you came into this a little bit later, so I want to get, get your honest perspective <clears throat> Um, when you saw these images uh, that, that Bo took, you know, for the first time, I mean, I can tell you that, that if, if Ansel Adams or Annie Leibovitz went out mm-hmm. to film veterans, uh, to shoot veterans, it, for my money, they couldn't yeah. have captured images this good. When you saw these, I mean, did it take your breath away like it did me, a, a layperson? Yeah, I, no, it, it absolutely did. And what was... I would have to go back even farther. So, you know, Dan, Dan links up with me and he's like, Hey, I've got this idea for a content creation project. And um, I'm one of the founders of the military lifestyle apparel company, Ranger Up. So, you know, we also did the movie range 15 when I did that. Um, So I've been in that veteran content creation space for a very, since 2008. And Dan's not the first person to tell me I've got a great content project. And, um, Usually I, I listen politely for 30, 30, 60 seconds and then end up being the crusher of hopes and dreams, right? Like, oh, person X did this or, you know. And so, I mean, like I, Dan and I were in the National Guard together. I really, really like Dan, obviously. So I'm like, all right, well, okay, I'll give him two minutes, right? And he starts talking to me about it. And I'm like, huh, no, this, okay, yeah, no. Like we're, we're gonna talk about, we're talking about service and transition and, and what it means, okay, yeah. Yeah. And suddenly like I'm doing the bobblehead. I'm like, let's, let's go for this. And so he's like, Hey, I need your network. You know, we're, we need some veterans. I'm like, got it. The first email that I send out, I'm so excited actually was to Bill Butler, who's the chief of staff of the natural national veterans Memorial museum, who was a great help to us. And I'm so excited. I didn't even put a sub, I didn't even put a subject line. And, he, and Dan's like, uh, is he going to think this is spam or, like, <laughs> you know, like, like it was like 10 minutes after I'm like, oh man, like 10 minutes after that, you know, Bill got back and, and we got out of the ball rolling. And so 
I didn't see the, I didn't really see all the pictures until we started putting printouts of it on the wall to start putting the book together. And so I was actually with Dan and with Bo and it was just one of those where it's like, wow, you know, like this is amazing. And then you go to that's like, wow, like this is, and it was also crazy for me is because I had taken the audio files and turned their, turned their stories, you know, what they had, they had said into the, into the stories in the book. Right, and I'd right. never seen some of these people until I see Bo's work and I'm like putting a face with the yeah, story. Right, right. And it's just like, like that story came out of this person. Right. And, and it was just, it was a really, it was just a really awesome and sort of on inspiring experience. But to your point, yeah, it was like, I had had so many different touch points with these people and so many different touch points with the experience of getting this book created, you know, there's a, there's a couple of people that were friends of mine in the, you know, in the book before Bo photographed them. So I was familiar with them, but so many that I wasn't. And so just to the sort of the way that we put it together and the speed we did and the, and seeing those portraits um, sort of all at once, as we were like saying, this is how the book's going to go was just one of those experiences that I'll treasure forever because I got to do it with my, you know, my friends and, you know, as, as we were, were doing this thing and, you know, um, putting them up on Dan's office wall, right? Like we were literally taping the, the picture and the story and we're, then we're pulling it off and we'll be like, no, this one goes there. And like, no, I don't like that one there. And, you know, it was, it was just a really cool experience but the entire time. It was just the, the pictures that really drove that for us, for sure. The book is the 20 year war that we're talking about. It's this incredible coffee table book. And, and I'm sure there are people who are, are listening or watching right now who are, are Googling and looking at some of these images. So Bo, I'm not going to ask you to give up any trade secrets, but for the photography geeks who are listening or watching right now, give them a little something, something. How did you shoot these? Uh, so technically I shot everything on medium format film. Um, so I shot on a 1981 camera. Uh, it's a Pentax 6.7. So basically I only have 10 shots, you know, per roll of film. Uh, that's basically the only processor medium I've been shooting for over 10 years. Um, even with some of my personal work. And so you're obviously very limited with your exposure. So you have to be very concise with each photo. Um, you have to take your time. It's not like you're bursting and, you know, hundreds of shots that you can go through. Um, I was literally taking maybe two photos per veteran. Um, and the cool thing about it is that, you know, we've been able to enlarge these photos to, you know, make them into giant artworks, um, which, you know, maybe we can talk about that when we wrap up this episode. But yeah, it's just, it captures the true detail of each portrait. You know, there's no Photoshop, there's no lighting, there was no assistant, there's no makeup artist. There's literally the set that you're using is natural light or you're using the light from inside their home or their workplace. Um, and you're having to kind of figure out how to take that portrait in a matter of minutes. Um, I didn't get to location scout any of these places beforehand. So to me, it was an, an awesome experience to challenge myself and my work even more creatively that way. Well, you knocked it out of the park and, and I don't want to wait because now you've piqued my curiosity. The, you, you talked about blowing these up into portraits. Are you thinking about maybe touring some of these photos around the galleries or what, what do you have planned? Yeah, so when we released this book, uh, The 20 Year War, we released it on 9-11 of last year at the National Veterans Memorial Museum in Columbus, Ohio. Um, it's an absolutely beautiful museum. I highly encourage anybody who's passing through that area or even just make a separate trip to go visit it. They believed in us since day one about releasing the book and they wanted to continue to tell the story even further. And so they are turning the 20 year war book into an actual uh, traveling art exhibition. So it'll be on display starting March 12th 
at the museum and uh, it'll be there for about six months. And from there, it'll then move across the United States to different museums and exhibitions. Um, so you'll actually be able to see, you know, select uh, portraits from the 20 year war blown up large scale, you know, as an exhibit. And it's crazy to see how much more detailed they are compared to the book. I mean, the book is beautiful on its own. It's a piece of art, but when I've actually traveled out to my um, distributor and an art printer out in San Francisco, and I've seen how big these artworks are and the detail in their faces, it just doesn't even compare. What an honor. Congratulations, Bo. That's fantastic. Thank you. Wow. Hey, I, I want to, in our remaining moments, uh, hit Dan and Tom up for a little bit of, uh, of your military expertise. Uh, and, and Dan, let's start with you. I think to a man and woman in America, we were all pretty disappointed is the generous way to say and, and the way things unfolded in Afghanistan. Tom would, would probably have said disgusted instead of disappointed, but, but you, you know, you got six months to look back on this. Uh, look, we were going to come out of there. Could it have been done better? Could it have been done differently? And if so, from your vantage point as a ranger who spent a lot of time over there, if it could have been done better, what, what should we have done differently? I think the first thing was to listen to every single military analyst, uh, intelligence analyst, everybody who knew the history of the Taliban and just understand that no matter what they say, if you don't hold them to it, they are going to bend and break every rule that you try and set in place. And they did absolutely that. When we had the negotiations with the Taliban in Doha, we set out uh, a, a list of basically demands or rules or things that we were going to abide by and they were going to abide by while we withdrew from Afghanistan. Uh, they broke those you know, agreements from day one. And it's not because the central leadership of the Taliban were necessarily trying to do it. But what people need to realize is that the Taliban are very tribal in nature. It's not one big thing, right? It's it's a whole bunch of little groups. <clears throat> exactly. And Afghanistan as a whole is tribal in nature. Right. right. And so you can't have this centralized agreement and believe that everybody is going to abide by that. And so when we decided we were going to try and prop up this government and this military, um, it should have been much like we had throughout all of our other wars, whether that's you know presence in the region. Uh, whether it's permanent, you know, bases in, in these places like we've done in South Korea and in Japan and, and Germany um, and across Europe, really. Um, that's how I envisioned it was going to happen. Obviously, that's not. They made the agreement that they were going to withdraw every single troop out of there. And in a landlocked country, you can't really have any sort of strategic advantage and any presence there. Um, and so it was just... Uh, it's really hard for, for us as members of the military to see it happen and understand that people at the highest levels are the ones making the decision when the people are boots on the ground understand something completely different. Yeah. And Tom, I know that, that you were involved, very involved in quietly trying to help get our interpreters out of there, mm -hmm. trying to get U.S. citizens out of there. Um, and, and we hear a little bit about how bad the humanitarian crisis is there now. I mean, winners are harsh harsh, harsh yeah. in that part of the yes. world. Uh, you know, you guys live through it. How bad uh, from the people that you know that are over there, how bad is it there now and what can be done, if anything? Tens of thousands of people are going to die this winter. That's the bottom line. I like, I don't, 
there's no cute or polite way to just not rip that bandaid. That is happening right now, and that will happen all winter. Um, the estimations right now from a conglomerate of four four former ambassadors or special envoys and three senior generals to include commanders of CENTCOM or the Afghanistan battle space have estimated that by this time next year, if this isn't solved in the next 12 months, 97% of all the people living in Afghanistan right now will be in quote extreme poverty. So, you know, everyone knows the battle of the Black Sea, Black Hawk down. And, you know, we went there for a humanitarian mission. That's where it started. The scope and scale of the humanitarian crisis that's currently facing Afghanistan, if the world doesn't do something, is roughly 10x that, with no exaggeration. You're talking about a single city in Mogadishu, Somalia, controlled by a single warlord. Now we're talking about an entire country trying to be controlled by this tribal identity um, form of government that has influences of clear terrorism. You know, the interior minister, Hajar Sarkhani, or Harkhani, sorry, is still worth a $10 million American bounty for being a narco-terrorist. So that's that's the backdrop to, to the humanitarian crisis. And that's the thing that, you know, Dan's point, when we were talking about boots in the ground, we, like, it's just, you know, even when we were trying to get people out and everything, what was so amazing about that network is that everyone just ran to these cries of help. And it didn't matter, like, if you had any way to help someone, you were there. And so I was working with people that work in non-government agencies, people who worked at the State Department, people who, you know, were military like myself or intelligence. And you had everyone ranging from super, super far left of the spectrum to super, super far right. And you just heard these little snippets of information and everyone's and but from every facet like yeah this was never going to work like of course like like dan said of course taliban was going to try and violate this and these are the things that you didn't need to think of and you know what i what i've said when people have asked me about this is like i don't really care at this point like my anger and frustration i've gotten to the point of like this is where we are i don't care where you fall on that political spectrum i don't care what your opinions are in the macro what we need to accept is that we as the united states broke this we did. Now, you can agree or disagree with, with the president of the United States right now or call him your guy or not your guy, but he is the representative of our country here in the U.S. He has made these decisions. And right now we continue to make these decisions that are, that are causing people to die from starvation, which, you know, is not an easy way to go. It's, it's from neglect. It's from um, a lack of compassion and a lack of empathy. And that's what breaks my heart the most about it was. So what do we need to do? How can it be fixed? And, and I'll leave it with you, Tom. What, um, what needs to happen there? I mean, one, we, we need to actually have a cohesive diplomatic strategy that is focused on feeding people and is focused on taking care of the average person. Start there. I don't, I don't want to hear about the military right now. I really don't. I don't want to hear about uh, how bad the Taliban is or how evil the Taliban is. There are millions of people starving right now. So let's start at the basic and how do we figure that out? And when you look at the d- diplomacy right now, the Taliban are so desperate for money to feed these people. It's not like it was a few months ago when everyone's like, oh, well, they're going to use the money for this. They've got all of our weapons. Okay. They got plenty of guns and we gave them to them. They've got plenty of other things. Like what they need is the, frankly, the administrative and the logistical capability of someone to go in there and set the standard. So let's bring in our State Department. Let's bring it, you know, the Department of Agriculture for the United States was over in Afghanistan teaching how to, people how to farm for decades, for, the, for the, almost the entire 20 years that we were there. I was there in 02 and they were already starting to come in. They understand the ground. They understand logistics of transporting agricultural, you know, foodstuffs and things like that. So let's go back in there, 
right? Let's get the United Nations involved. Let's get NATO and, you know, NATO involved. I know NATO's got some other things going on right now in another part of the world, but like we can still have these missions, the United Nations and UNICEF, which was integral in getting some of the people that I was able to help get out of um, Afghanistan in the middle of it. Like there are all of these agencies, but what it's lacking right now is someone to stand up, which in my mind really should be our president because we're the ones that broke this as a nation and based on his decisions and say, okay, this is bad. We recognize the world has a responsibility to not let these people starve. So here's what we're going to do and quit. Like, look, I don't like the Taliban. I just, I mean, it's one of those things where it's like, I've been shot at by the Taliban. I've been, you know, I've done, I've had a whole, I've been on the wrong side of the Taliban for a long time, right? There comes a point where it's not about the bad things that are going on that someone else is doing. It's about the bad things that we caused. It's about the things that we can prevent and the things that never should have happened in my opinion in the first place. So let's go. So we, we owe it to these people. And frankly, we owe it to the world. If we're going to say that we're the the beacon on the hill, you know, the, the shining light of democracy of, of what right looks like, to use a military phrase, then then we need to exhibit that and we need to make sure these people don't starve because tens of thousands of them already will. They're already they're either dead or they're going to die. Fill their bellies and maybe fill their hearts and change some minds. Yes, um, and you touched on on NATO and, and other things happening in the world as we wrap up. Dan, I want to give you the last word. Now America is looking at uh, another big world crisis and are scrambling as Russia gets ready as of the recording of this conversation to potentially invade Ukraine. And uh, I wonder as a, a ranger who's been in, in a lot of uh, tight spots before, how do you think this thing is gonna play out and, and what if any should America's involvement be? What I hope doesn't happen is that it's another Crimea to where we sit back idly by, our NATO allies sit back idly by in a neighboring nation and just watch it happen. Yeah. Um, Russia has been wanting to expand their influence and expand their control uh, really since the Soviet collapse, since the Soviet Union collapse. And, um, you know, Vladimir Putin is going to continue to try and influence that region, going to continue to try and take more land. And uh, ultimately, the U.S. needs to step up. We right now are trying diplomatic solutions. We are showing a lot of weakness by withdrawing all of our um, all of our people from the embassy. Um, we're just not showing the world that we're really there for them. And Russia's absolutely going to take advantage of that. Mm -hmm. And so there's this talk of deploying 8,500 troops, you know, to neighboring nations around Ukraine. The reason why they're not going to put them in Ukraine is because they, that shows a direct uh, escalation to Russia and they believe you know that's going to set off potentially World War III. Nobody wants that to happen but the U.S. has to step up yeah. and show that they are still you know the world power especially the military world power and they've got majority of the world behind them in support and so hopefully we can bring in our NATO allies we can support Ukraine and we can push Russia back and make them realize that uh, they can't just take over these nations uh, you know at will. Thanks for your perspective. It's a tenuous time for all of us. I want to thank Bo Simmons for taking incredible photos in 20-year war. Dan and Tom, I want to thank you both for your service and thank all three of you for joining us on the show today. The book is The 20-Year War. It's uh, an incredible look at uh, the men and women who fought the global war on terror. And you can find it at 20yearwar.com from Ballast Books. 
Thanks also to our guest uh, host today from Zoom into Books, Headline Books, Kathy and Ashley and Belinda, the whole team there. And thanks to our sponsor, SpeakerMatch.com. Thank you for watching and listening. Appreciate it. Go pick up the 20-year war today at 20yearward.com. I'm Burke Allen. Make it a great day. Bye, everybody.